The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 394 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is services for and needs of FASD children. Now, the World Health Organization, in its 2014 publication, Guidelines for the Identification and Management of Substance Use and Substance Use Disorders in Pregnancy, recognized FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, as a range of physical and brain-related developmental abnormalities attributed to the effects of alcohol on the unborn child, the fetus. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders last a lifetime and create various challenges throughout all the stages of life. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders for children and young adults cause their mental ages to be far below their chronological ages, even though their physical appearances match the chronological ages, a truly major challenge. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders create challenges for families and family caregivers throughout all the stages. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders have no cure, though some medications and behavior therapy may help. But no one treatment is right for everyone, which causes challenges for healthcare and social services providers, which is why our topic, services for and needs of FASD children is so important for the FASD community. Now, to discuss it, our guests are Angela Geddes and Darlene. Uh, we are omitting the Darlene's last name because of privacy issues. Angela is the assessment coordinator at the FASD London Region Assessment Clinic. She began work in this field over 20 years ago. Her first professional experience was of a young boy diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome, which is one of the fetal alcohol um, system disorders. Um, Since then, that time, she's worked in various education, community, mental health, and justice and healthcare settings, supporting families and children, many of whom were affected by prenatal exposure to alcohol. And as part of this work, Angela has been successful in developing, implementing, and evaluating several innovative evidence-based programs which have helped close gaps in services. Darlene is an early childhood educator and what she describes as a homeschooling mom of two. She's worked with children for the past 24 years 
in formal and home childcare settings. Over the years, she's worked with children with many of what she calls personalities, including those diagnosed with autism, ADHD, ADD, and other developmental disorders, including FASD. She and her husband provided a foster home for newborns. They adopted a little girl, now eight, and diagnosed with alcohol-related neurodevelopment disorders, another FASD. The lack of support, resources, and understanding in the community for those with FASD led Darlene to advocate not only for our own family, but also for other families who live with or who are supporting family members with FASD. So welcome to the show, Angela and Darlene. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Angela, first question for you, please. Uh, please tell us more about your life, your career, and your experience with FASD children. Angela? Um, well, I was born and raised in northern Ontario. I was born to a mining uh, family and lived in Sudbury my entire life. Um, I am a mother of three children myself. I initially studied at Cambrian College and became a child and youth worker. I have since um, attained a psychological or psych, um, a degree in psychology, and I'm currently studying my master's in social work, soon to be finished. So, um, my career um, began over 20 years ago, and as you mentioned, my first uh, professional experience was with a little fella named uh, Sean, and he had fetal alcohol syndrome, and. Um, there were some advantages and disadvantages to that diagnosis at the time because um, because he had facial features and growth restrictions. He was easily identified. Since that time, I've worked with a number of people who've been exposed prenatally to alcohol but have been less um, obvious in their presentation. And so for the past 20 years, although I'd like to say I've been helpful to many, I've also not thoroughly understood um, the diagnosis um, and right. the implications of it, and the as I do now. The, mm-hmm. yeah, but, yes, yeah. that's right. Darling, so, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just hastening us on because of the what I call the tyranny of time, so mm-hmm. forgive me if I sound rude. <laughs> Darling, please tell us more about your life, your life, your career, and your experience with FASD children. Darling? Uh, yes, um, I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I was adopted um, at 10 days old into a family with three older brothers, um, and then moved to Ontario when I was three. So um, ended up going to college and became an early childhood educator, and I've been doing that for the past 24 years, like you said, in formal child care, home child care, um, and currently I teach at the local college in the early childhood program. So working with all the children that have come through my care, I figured I'd had skills to work effectively um, with special needs children and their families. But given my background, becoming a foster home for newborns was natural for us. And so we started taking in drug-addicted and alcohol-affected babies, which was very challenging and rewarding. Um, We've been blessed to be able to adopt one of our foster babies, who is now almost eight years old. And I figured I could do this with my skills, my personality, my supportive family. This would be no problem. But nothing I was using with her was working. She struggled with her interactions, her hyperactivity, impulsivity, and emotional outbursts. And um, finally, we got a diagnosis at age six, and I've met Angela. She was the first um, connection on my FASD journey. 
and it's brought me now here to advocating because the supports are so lacking. Right. Now, I'm going to ask Angela, please to tell us more about your work, that is your professional work as it is now. Angela? Mm-hmm. Currently, I am coordinating the um, the only diagnostic clinic here in the London region. Diagnostic services are offered very sporadically across the province, and this came to be as a result of a partnership between 14 different agencies in the London region that realized that we needed to do things differently. Um, so I have been, uh, I was hired here in May 2012. We started doing assessments in September, and I've so far had the privilege of working with 38 families who have went through assessments from start to finish. Um, the assessment procedure is quite comprehensive in that it involves a medical provider, a psychologist, speech and language pathologist, and ideally an occupational therapist to be able to take a really good look at that child's um, profile and identify strengths and areas of deficits. Let let me go to Darlene now. Mm -hmm. It's a similar question, but I want you please to tell us more about your responsibilities as family caregiver for a family member living with FASD. Darlene? Um, That's a big, lots of responsibilities. So we know when people look at our little girl that they see a, a bright little girl who's chatting up a storm, interrupting a lot, lots of energy on the move constantly. Um, something that they don't know um, is that we keep up with that from morning to night and it doesn't stop. So we have had to really work hard at figuring out what works to help her cope from moment to moment. So things like the doorbell, the dog barking, the phone ringing can set her off for the rest of what might have been a quiet day. Outings can be very overstimulating for her, so a simple trip to the grocery store um, could really kind of throw her off for a day. So she wears her cloak of competence, we call it, when we're out, um, but underneath it all is a little one who really is emotionally and behaviorally more like a toddler, and so that's our reality. Um, And being her external brain is what kind of the word is out there. I prefer to use coach um, or her guide. Um, to help her with her cognitive impairments. And so what looks like, you know, us constantly being there with her and and kind of coaching her, that's what she needs in order to make good choices and decisions. So it's pretty much a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, you know, commitment to these children and and a load of patience. Yeah. Now, quick question for both of you. Angela, I talked about the discussion discrepancy between mental age and chronological age. Mm-hmm. Is that, Angela, such a serious problem? Is, am I exaggerating it, do you think? No, I don't think you're exaggerating it at all. I think that that's really accurate. I, I offer that advice uh, or that um, that piece of information to all of the families that, that we work through, and I think that that in and of itself can be very helpful in terms of modifying the expectations that we place on these individuals. Um, it's it's very normal to allow your 12-year-old daughter, for example, to go downtown with her bicycle and her friends, um, but it's not as a, it's not a safe thing to do to let your six-year-old... Right, do that. Right. So, Darlene, same question. To, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but mm-hmm. Darlene, same question for you. What about this question of the of the discrepancy between mental age and physical age, uh, or chronological age, as expressed by how the child looks? Do you agree with what I said? Absolutely. 
um, I know for us it was when Emma was two, you know, she was a, quite a active, hyperactive little two-year-old. And so as an early child, <clears throat> excuse me, as an early childhood educator, you know, well, she's two, she'll, you know, she's going to come through. And then at three, I was still saying that. And then at four, and then it was at about that five and a half mark where I was like, okay, she's not keeping up to her peers and she's not maturing the way that I would as an early childhood educator expect to see her maturing. Um, and that's when the light bulb went off for us. And like I said, she's going to be eight in a couple weeks. Um, and if you were to see her, she does present quite competent. Um, but the more that you would spend with her, even into an hour with her, you'll see the wheels come off a little bit and you start seeing behaviors that look odd for an eight-year-old. So that we've adjusted now and realized that it's easier to meet her needs when you think of her more as a toddler or a three, three or four-year-old is where she would be at. Thank you very much. Both of you, that was a very clear, um, I think, expression of the kind of challenges that have to be lived with. I think that's mm-hmm. the right way to put it. Yeah. Now, once again, um, we this is the timing problem uh, and it's time for the break. This is where I always say we have to pay the rent, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guests are Angela Geddes and Darlene. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and to Angela Geddes and Darlene. Our topic is services for and needs of 
FASD children. So now both of you, let's talk about the challenges that FASD creates for children, for their families and for their family caregivers and for social and healthcare services. So Angela, please highlight for us what you see as the most challenging of the challenges created for children living with FASD. I think the most significant challenge would be for the little person to constantly feel so misunderstood. I think that um, the kids just don't fit in quite as well. They have some in, impulse control issues and some affect regulation, inability to kind of control their anger responses, for example. They have fewer friends, but yet they love people. They just, all they want to do is be friends and be friendly in most cases, and yet they just don't seem to be able to connect the same way. I think society um, and schools see their behavior problems as being very, or see them as having behavior problems and, and it being very willful rather than the fact that they've, um, they're, they're experiencing brain damage um, as a result of the prenatal exposure to alcohol. So I think the constant academic difficulties and, um, can be really trying for, for these little people and as they continue to grow and the presentation is so scattered that, um, but often their, their level of intelligence falls when tested within the average range. So it's really puzzling to people to, to understand why they, they have such potential but yet can't always access that information at the time that's important or, or the, the time that they need it. So. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Darlene. Please highlight for us what you see as the most challenging of the challenges created for families and family caregivers of children living with FASD. Darling? Yeah, like, much like what Angela said, a um, lack of understanding in our schools, our communities, um, our local agencies, and even within our own circles of family and friends. A lot of times the perception is that they're bad kids with bad parents, so what are the parents doing wrong? Um, so that lack of recognition when we say that our daughter has FASD um, is pretty hard. If, um, if we had stated that she has anxiety disorder or ADHD or OCD, people seem to understand that better, and they don't get what FASD really means. So with appointments and therapies and learning about what it means to her development, um, it's a bad, you know, we're, what we're doing is figuring out what her world looks like. These are the years that we need, sorry, my... These are the years that we need to work on teaching her skills. The other challenge that we find, I think, is for parents and families to really under, understand that they have to parent differently and not the way that society thinks that we should. So once we had the diagnosis and I learned more about her organic brain damage, we realized we had to change our approach and that we had to make accommodations for her. So we're not coddling her. We're not pampering her. We're not being helicopter parents, but we're coaching and guiding and I think this shift is a real challenge for families and caregivers to make as it really does go against everything we've known from outsiders. And we've had the perception that, you know, just back off of her, let her be, she'll be fine, when really we know too well that the aftershocks, as what we call them, if we don't support her properly, will be pretty, pretty um, difficult. Right. Mm -hmm. Angela. Please highlight for us what you see as the most challenging of the challenges created for providers of social services for children living with FASD. Angela? 
Well, I think that um, it goes back to the, the fact that we misunderstand them often, and I think that it's important to recognize that we only know what we know. And as service providers, it's FASD is not always on the forefront, and it's certainly not on the job description of many of us, and it's certainly not um, readily within the curriculums of our education system either. And so, um, you know, not not being aware of, of, of the fact that these kids are experiencing something other than ADHD or typical mental health um, issues um, is really difficult for, for us as service providers to be able to, you know, understand. And as Darlene said, it, it kind of cuts against the grain of what we know as service providers, as teachers and as parents, um, you know, to, to, to parent in a way that, you know, cause and effect and understanding that there's consequences that follow misbehavior and realizing, getting it, you know, make, really understanding that that approach does not work for these kids and that we do need to protect them essentially from making poor decisions and change the environment so that they're experiencing more success. And with more success, their behaviors and their expression of, you know, of their, their, their way of communicating will be more positive and, and happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Darlene, please highlight for us what you see as the most challenging of the challenges created for providers of healthcare services for children living with FASD. Darlene? Um, I think when you're looking at the healthcare system per se, um, it seems that there's a real lack of understanding. It's kind of the blanket seam, I think, of what FASD is. Mm-hmm. Um, where do doctors send children for diagnosis? Um, how does FASD impact the children in our communities? So I think the conversations need to start happening, uh, more open conversations, even with families, creating that safe space to talk about their pregnancies and alcohol use in order to really understand the challenges that their child might be facing. Um, that would be a great starting point. But sadly, we put a stigma. There's a stigma in our society on FASD, and so it's not really talked about in pregnancy. Um, We know that doctors are still telling people a drink here or there is okay, and it's not okay. Um, We need to change that conversation, I think, and support women in their pregnancies and beyond to help them make healthy choices. So just that lens of, of identifying, you know, maybe a woman's been through some trauma and she's got substance abuse issues. How can we support her properly instead of just turning away and hoping her problems go away? Because it starts there, Mm -hmm. and then their children can hopefully get the proper diagnosis. And the other lens, I think, for healthcare providers, too, is that FASD is not just to women with substance abuse issues. It can happen to anyone. So we need to have that lens, compassionate support from our healthcare providers where families can get talking um, openly. Mm Yes, that's what I was going to say, if I, if I can just interject, because I think Please that do. most of us do not understand that 50% of pregnancies are unplanned and 50% of childbearing women of childbearing years drink alcohol. So before we find out about the pregnancy, there's you know often four to six to eight weeks of, of opportunity for our babies to be exposed to alcohol without us knowing. And I, I know of no mother who deliberately harms their unborn baby, but there's a lot of a lot of babies that are exposed unknowingly. Now, for both of you, I'd like to go back to something that you've both referred to, and that is, this is brain damage, is what I'm hearing you saying, and that Mm -hmm. means that brain damage is damage. Mm -hmm. That is, it isn't behavior, it isn't choice, 
It isn't influence of anything. It's simply that the brain has been damaged at some point. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, um, let me ask Darlene, does it make any difference, do you think, in the way that children and therefore their caregivers, their family caregivers are viewed, if the point is made strongly that this child is living with brain damage? Darlene, does that help? Absolutely, and I use that analogy quite a bit to people where, you know, it's just like saying to a child in a wheelchair, well, you know, if they just try a bit harder, they'll be able to get up and walk. You know, it's that feeling that we get as parents of children with FASD that, you know, we as parents are doing it all wrong, and if we just did this, the children will, will be better. And that's not the case. It, it's, it, it's not as simple and cut and dried as that. Yes, if we change how we parent and offer accommodations, Emma's life will be better and more successful, but the FASD will never be gone. There will always be that layer that we need to work with. Um, so definitely, if people could understand that stronger in our society, I think that would help. Now, Angela, this is the same question, but it's directed mm-hmm. at my ex-worthwhile profession and other um, mm-hmm. professions involved in this kind of diagnosis, um, uh, care, treatment, whatever it is. What mm-hmm. about the influence of the notion that this is brain damage? How well understood is that among doctors, for example? And how well do we as a society get that message across to each other? Angela? Well, I think that the emphasis on the fact that it is it is um, not their fault and it is it's not a choice and that the behavior is is their way of communicating and you know results from brain damage. I think that's really important, but I still think that the the impact of the diagno or the the brain damage resulting from alcohol is still puzzling to many because some days the kids present like they understand things and the next day they may not. So it's difficult to know from a you know, a support person to know why is today different than it was yesterday, you know, and knowing that the wiring is just not connecting today, but it did yesterday. And that's linked to the brain damage. You know what I mean? Like many of us still don't really understand the implications of that. And we're still expecting skill by like step by step and skill building and, and us learning from our mistakes eventually. And that's not always the way that it works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Another very quick last-minute question for you both. Talking about family caregivers, what's the single most important message that you think that family caregivers should give to um, people around about the state of the brain of the child that uh, on some days is doing okay, sometimes isn't? What do you think? I think that we need to remain strength-based and we really need to come from a, you know, a loving, kind, kind place and, and understanding that, um, that that relationship is going to be imperative for any kind of growth and skill and learning to take place. And if you are constantly feeling like you never meet the mark and you're always upsetting somebody and you're always frustrating somebody, there's risk of secondary disabilities and eventually just giving up. Yeah. Darling, just quickly, do you see this acknowledgement of the brain damage as a method of protecting the child? Absolutely. I think just getting that understanding out there and getting people to see 
see through that lens of FASD and that it's not just the bad kids with bad parents. I think it's really important to the child. Like Angela said, it will set them up for success rather than shut down. I think it's important to know that there is success. I mean, the the prognosis is is excellent with the proper supports and with, you know, with families. And I, I know many very successful, very happy adults, and we need to know that too. You know, yep. but they need to be understood, and they need to be supported in a way that uh, that builds that relationship and that self-esteem, and and their mental health is protected as well. Great yeah. point. Now, once again, I have to interrupt on behalf of the time, sure. so that we take the break. <laughs> but we're coming back. This is Dr. Gordon Asley, and my guests are Angela Geddes and Darlene. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP ninety point one FM Community Radio, and SharingTheBurden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick-and-mortar locations or traditional bankers' hours. Today, banking is 24-7. It's in the home. It's on the go. It's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and, of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you love to travel? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? Who doesn't love to travel? Join Lindsay T. Boyd, a.k.a. the Dreamweaver, for Travel Time. A professional travel agent, Lindsay will spotlight the world of travel. From maps and other travel tools to make your trips easier, to your rights as a passenger, to different aspects of travel, such as sports, faith, or experiential vacations. Travel Time with Lindsay T. Boyd, Dreamweaver, airs live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg 
at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and to Angela Geddes and Darlene. Our topic is services for and needs of FASD children. Now, please, both of you, let's talk about the needs of and services for FASD children to help them, their families and their family caregivers and their providers of social and healthcare services in meeting the challenges that FASD creates, the kind of challenges you were talking about in the, in the last segment. So, Angela, you first. Please highlight for us what you see as the most important needs and services for helping meet the challenges we've been talking about. Angela? Well, I do think that there are many needs that families experience, um, but I think that it really, really is important to understand our our children. And so access to diagnosis is really, really important. Um, If my child were to have symptoms of diabetes, I would push for a diagnosis, and I wouldn't stop until he was properly diagnosed and and supported and treated. And and I would be offered education to be able to make sure that he was fed properly and and taken good care of. And I think that everybody should have access to that kind of um, care. So I think also that families would benefit from some sort of case management or system navigator to help help them inform and support uh, their formal and their informal supports uh, in terms of the impact of, of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and the diagnosis. Um, I think that families would benefit from having access to FASD-informed approaches without having to always say, you know, this is not working or this is what my child has. And, you know, to, to constant... To, my, my dream is that families don't have to work so hard to advocate for services that should just be theirs. Right. And I also think families need some respite and some professional care so families can stay preserved and together and healthy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, just to, to take a quick line from you, it is a matter of the health of the entire family, isn't it, in, in, it, in the way that we've been discussing it? It, ab- it absolutely is. I mean, yeah. everybody um, is affected by, by FASD when they're living in that, you know, in that home. Right. Mm-hmm. Darlene, for you, please. Please highlight for us what you see as the most important needs and services for helping meet the challenges created families for families and family caregivers when there's a child or children living with FASD. Darlene? Um, yeah, much like what Angela said, I think coordinated services for families. Um, I know for myself and our family, we had to kind of do all the digging. Where do we go for an FASD diagnosis? Um, we ended up having to travel to Toronto to get one um, because Angela's clinic is awesome, but it's running on limited funding as well. So we had to go to Toronto um, and kind of create our own path. And because we're a homeschooling family, I don't have the school resources to tap into. So we've had, you know, we have to find the speech therapy, the occupational therapy, all on our own. So I think a lot of us as families, we can feel that challenge of now where do we go? Now what do we do? And and not being understood, again, it's that whole lens of when people are with your children and, and really think it's us. And even respite, we've tried respite here, and it did not work successfully because the person just does not understand FASD. So um, I think just informed people and people who are trained would really help the families. Mm-hmm. Now that takes me to Angela with a question that, really flows from what Darlene's just been saying, and that is, 
And so what do you see as the most important needs and services for helping meeting, meet the challenges created for providers of social services? Angela? Well, we need to we need to build capacity within the system. I think it's important to note that at a prevalence rate of 1% in Canada right now, we're looking at 340,000 individuals who would benefit from a diagnosis, and our capacity right now across the country is less than 2,000. And so that doesn't touch the new births, you know, that are coming every year on top of that. So training and more training is what families and what what service providers need in order to be more FASD aware and to be able to support families immediately um, through that lens. And I think that, you know, case studies and consultation, once, once service providers really see a family and their struggles and link it directly to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, they're kind of... Um, profoundly impacted and they're able to see their future career, you know, their future work much differently um, than just reading it in a book or trying to understand it. Like I think people need to feel it um, and really be be connected to families in order to make a difference. Right. Uh Darlene, please highlight, it's the same question that I asked Angela just now, but it relates to... um, providers of healthcare services. So in other words, please highlight for us what you see as the most important needs and services for helping meet the challenges created for providers of healthcare services. Darlene? Yeah, I think having doctors um, and people, frontline workers who are working with children really to understand the effects of FASD on on the brain, the speech and language disorders, occupational therapy, sensory dysfunction, that lack of of understanding really does impact child development. Um, We need our diagnostic clinics in our communities to start receiving full funding without having to, you know, scrounge for it the way Angela's had to, you know, really fight to get that funding. Um, It's an important role to have these clinics in place. So I think educating our medical professionals um, about what does FASD look like in a child that comes into your clinic? So I know our daughter, the first thing, and many people say, oh, she's got ADHD, because that's the first thing that they're going to see. So, yes, she has high energy, and she can be very defiant, or, sorry, appear to be defiant, but what it is, it's her impulsivity and hyperactivity and defiance are symptoms of FASD. Um, So having that knowledge and that education to our doctors and, and frontline people would really help families like ourselves. Now, Angela and Darlene, I'm going to ask you a question that flows from both of your answers, and that is, it sounds to me as though the the lack of support in key places for the services um, is a political problem, and therefore there's a need to influence the politicians, the decision makers, that Mm -hmm. there's something here that needs doing. Now, starting with Angela, but also following up with Darlene, first of all, uh, do you agree with what I just said? And if, whether you agree or not, (laughs) would you be willing to say, what is the message that you would like to get across to the decision makers and the politicians? Angela. Well, I think that I think that currently fetal alcohol spectrum disorder crosses over multiple sectors and I think that right now it's it needs to find a home. It needs to find somebody who will kind of take the leadership role. And uh because it does 
you know, it, it doesn't solely, it's not solely a health issue, it's not solely an education issue, it's not solely a justice issue, but instead it's everyone. So we need to look at um, understanding that how working together at an interministerial approach will be so cost savings cost-saving in the long run, and I mean fiscally and financially is one thing, but cost to families um, is far more important to me. But but we are spending a lot of money on children and youth services and adult services that are not right now um, being as helpful as they could be if we understood what was really happening. Now, what I've noticed in various of my discussions is the point that whereas with some illnesses, and cancer is the most notable Mm -hmm. example of this, uh, there's a huge sympathy, and rightly so, um, a huge understanding that this is a terrible disease to have. But Mm -hmm. that level of understanding, Angela and Darlene, quick question, doesn't seem to be as high as it seems to me that it needs to be. Angela, first of all, for you, what about that broad understanding in society about the real challenge of FASD? Angela? Well, I think Darlene mentioned there is a stigma. I mean, we all know there's a stigma to mental health issues in general. And so there's an additional stigma because we do know that that alcohol um, is is the cause. And so it is preventable in most cases, right? So right. it's it's that much more difficult. And then also, you know, in order to get a diagnosis, you need to have a tough question with the biological family at some point in time. And people um, are hesitant to have that conversation at times because they feel that it may risk the therapeutic relationship. You know, as a service provider, it's it, it may I may lose yes. this family if 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 I'm asking them or if I'm in some way attaching blame to the circumstance. So you know, we have to we have to get more comfortable with that too. And I think that uh, biological parents are amazing, and they're they're so resilient in so many cases yeah. that. You know, they they accept where they're at and and have and learn and and actually those conversations can prevent subsequent pregnancies because as I mentioned, nobody deliberately harms their baby. We only know what we know, and yeah. once we have those tough conversations, it can make a world of good for the future. Right, Darlene, what do you think? What about making a world of good for the future? What would you like to see done? Yes, I would. Well, I know in my in our situation, um, calling some local agencies to tap into some programs or looking for some assistance on on you know maybe some of our behavior problems and literally getting a brick wall the minute I mentioned that our daughter's been diagnosed with FASD um, has been really challenging and, and frustrating to the point where I've I've actually had a you know um, intake say, well, you understand she has brain damage and we don't have programs for children like that. And so that we need to change that and hopefully shows like this, you know, and just more mm-hmm. advocating so that we don't get those brick walls. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, thank you for saying that about the show. Um, what I'm going to ask you in the next, um, set, the last segment is more about how we use what I call promotion of important messages um, to get the messages across in the way that you've coded the messages, the way that you've 
worded the messages and the ways in which you've emphasized the messages. But we do have to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adley. My guests are Angela Geddes and Darlene. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Lots of people talk about publishing their work, but have no idea where to start. If you are one of these aspiring authors or know somebody who is, don't miss Publishing Today Radio with Athena Dean Holtz. Thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and in general, storytellers all want to get their messages in print, and that includes branding and marketing. Athena and her guests are here to answer your publishing questions and more. Tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune in to the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Angela Geddes and Darlene. Our topic is services for and needs of FASD children. Now, both of you, let's talk about the things that you would like to do and to see done to improve services for FASD children, their families and their family caregivers. So, Angela, question that we've touched on before, but what more would you like to see done and by whom to improve services for FASD children? Well, you mentioned the political stance, and I do believe that Ontario is in need of a provincial strategy, and uh, the Ministry of Children and Youth Services is just undertaking the, the initial stages with community consultations at this time, so we're hopeful that things might, you know, will get better in the future. There does need to be policy changes, and agencies do need to be mandated, in my opinion, to become FASD-informed, and that's the entire agency. Um, you know, to offer and to be inclusive of FASD. I'm not sure that I have seen um, a disorder that's been more excluded, quite frankly, from the majority of the work that we do, but yet it's a part of everything we do in, in health care and social services. So there needs right. to be core funding dedicated to improve the access to diagnosis and 
um, you know, systems will not be built on hypothetical clients. I've said that before, and it's, you know, we need to understand what, what the need is and what the prevalence is and what the impact is. Right. Mm-hmm. Darlene, what more would you like to see done and by whom to improve support for family caregivers of FASD children? Darlene? I think in our education system, I would like to see um, a lot more educating starting in high school, um, Mm -hmm. right up to medical school, into teachers' college, into social workers, anybody who's going to be working in a field supporting people, basically, Mm -hmm. that they they have this lens that they get taught about what FASD is, what it looks like. Um, I think a lot of courses, you know, might have, you know, a half an hour part of a lecture about FASD, and that's about it. I think just education to the frontline people, um, on top of everything that Angela's been saying as well, but I'm, I'm really seeing a need for the educating of, of the people who are working with with our children. I would agree. Right. Now, my next question, it actually follows from what you've just been saying, um, but it's, a, in a way, a bit of a loaded or biased question. But mm-hmm. anyway, let me let me put it to you. You see, both of you and I are now recording an episode in which we've discussed a topic that is crucially important for many families of FASD children, maybe all families. Mm -hmm. The episode, our episode now, will be saved in an archive so anyone can listen to it at any time from almost anywhere. So my question to you both is, Do you think that having more discussions like this one in the archive, first of all, would be helpful to social workers? And if so, how would it be helpful to them? So, Angela, what about the idea of an archive for social workers? Angela, do you Oh, I think that that would be really, really helpful. I mean, it's very relevant to social work in in all aspects of their work. Um, When you think about, you know, policy change and system system, changes, enhancements, system navigation, advocacy work, the focus of family preservation. When you think about um, children in care and the higher prevalence rates for our kids in care, I mean, it's upwards to 70%. Um, Intergenerational FASD happens. Moms with FASD are having babes with FASD, with neither of them being properly diagnosed and understood in some cases. So oftentimes families are being blamed rather than supported, and as a result, they break down. You know, so the the cost to children in care and families in care is enormous, as Darlene has mentioned, and knows far better than any of us, you know. Right. Um, so I do think yep. it would be helpful. Great. Darlene, do you think that having more discussions like this one in the archive would be helpful to family caregivers? And if so, how would it be helpful to them? And I just want to emphasize that I'm putting you in the role of a family caregiver who's been talking about your work, your experience, your responsibilities. How useful then would it be for other family caregivers to be in a discussion giving their opinions in the way that you've done and how would it how would such uh, a recording an archive be helpful to all family caregivers concerned about their families F- children's FASD darling 
Um, I know for myself, um, hearing stories about people who are working with FASD children or, or clients, families who are living their day-to-day life, and even for myself, I've connected with adults who are living with FASD, and I can tell you I've received more insight through those interactions than I have through any textbook, webinar, course. Um, it's the real-life stories that have really helped shape our journey and the supports that we have in place from some of the adults living with FASD have been the most life-changing for for our family. Hearing about their struggles and their successes as adults has given us the insight. Um, and the words that our daughter maybe can't express yet, I hear through the adults when I speak with them. So I think there's just a real a place to create for families where, honestly, when you hear other people talking and they go, ah, I feel like somebody gets it. Because a lot of our life is spent having to fight for what we want people to understand. So just that space to know that, hey, somebody else gets it. Um, what better education is that, right? We, we can learn to put away what society thinks, how people think we should be parenting, and just work to, to interact and, and, and learn from others, and that's really important. Mm-hmm. So, Darlene, just to take that a step further, does it, would it help, would such an archive help family caregivers in, as individuals to feel that they're not alone? And if so, would that be important? Darlene? Absolutely. I know when I found, even when I found Angela, <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I don't feel so alone. I'm not going crazy here. And I've just built my world, you know, from Angela and then going to, you know, on online and meeting other people and families. I feel more connected to my online family, and that may sound really, you know, oh, she's too connected to the, you know, her online world, but honestly, that's where I feel accepted and understood completely, and so I think it really does help families to 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 know that there are others out there in this exact same journey. Mm-hmm. Right. Just very quickly, Angela, what mm-hmm. about the idea of information? Could this archive be useful as a way of providing information to, I'm going to say, family caregivers um, about FASD as experienced by family caregivers. Angela? I I do believe that um, people like to hear from like-minded individuals, and I really firmly believe that the experts are those who are living it day to day. Um, And so, you know, I think that there's tremendous support and, and learning that can take place from from that community for sure. I see it. Uh, we do we do offer a group here for caregivers and children that, that's run concurrently, and the connections and the bonds that are formed from that group, and even with me, um, I find it's it's quite profound actually because because the services are so few. Yep. That that when they do find them, you know, it's uh, it's a tremendous support. Can I just interject there just quickly, too, about the group that we have with Angela, going back to strength-based. It's a, it's a group where we all go to successfully support our children. It's not to go and complain about how awful our right. lives are. Yeah. And that, I think, is an important key. Mm-hmm. Positive stories, stories of yes. success. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this very, very important episode on this show. Mm. Um, and I want to say thank you. Angela, thank you, darling, for all that you've said, sharing your experience, your insights, and your advice. And 
all I can do is to say, for the sake of the FASD community and the fairness of our society, I want to wish you both, in all your work, continuing success. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. And um, with our Family Caregivers Unite, I'm speaking to our listeners now. We've started a new research project called Qualitative Research, which this episode is part of. And the idea is to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics, such as the one we've just been listening to, and for you to share with us your experiences of healthcare. So please email me to hear more or get involved. And also, if you'd like me like to be a guest on my show, here's how to connect with me. Please email me at docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Our next episode will be economic impact of type 2 diabetes on individuals and their families compared. Please join us same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 